This is W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis and my husband, our guest, Peter Blake. This show comes on every other week. It's really about experiencing art, and today especially. Absolutely. Good morning, everyone. An essential joy is a visit to Glenstone on a cold, wintry day. This gem in Potomac, Maryland, that we have talked about before in our radio program, is a place to stroll and look at nature as art and art as nature. The grounds, making up about 322 acres, will take you away from so many of the stressors that we are living with in our society today. I do not mean to ignore those stresses, but you can breathe in fresh air and you can imbibe in the sensuality that nature offers all of us and you can see great art. This is what Sheila, Peter, and I did this past Sunday. Right now, Glenstone has an incredible number of exhibitions that are truly worthwhile. There is drawing, sculpture, printmaking, photography, and mixed media from the permanent collection and works on exhibition. Glenstone Museum is in Potomac, Maryland, as I said, and you can immerse yourself in their wonderful, handsome website at glenstone.org. Check it out. Due to COVID, the Glenstone has limited entrance capacity and and you need to go online and visit their website at glenstone.org to reserve your tickets to visit the grounds and parts of this modern and contemporary art museum. Entrance and admission to Glenstone is always free, but you need to make reservations. Yeah, but, you know, because of COVID and because of winter, they do have a lot of cancellations now. So you might be able to get in on the spur of the moment. Just call them and see. Oh, great. Thanks for sharing that. I learned on our visit that Glenstone has a transportation arrangement with Ride-On and the Montgomery County Transit System. Glenstone takes passengers in the small bus from the Rockville Metro Station and goes directly to Glenstone. I spoke to a passenger that said it was very convenient. And I don't know how many buses run per hour, but I saw two buses at least in the 45 minutes that I was waiting there. And if you take the bus, you don't need a reservation. That's even better. That's a real perk. We titled this program Essential Glenstone. The word essential, which is an adjective, or essence, which is a noun, has always been an especially important word to me all my life. The noun essence means the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something, something abstract that determines its character. Glenstone gives us a sensual substance, an experience that can appeal to all the senses and a wholeness of experience. These two qualities are inherent and at the core of art and nature. Things that Glenstone presents supremely. Glenstone will be a name that will endure positively and profoundly for years to come in the ages. On this sunny winter's day, we drove out to Potomac, Maryland, onto winding, tree-lined roads 
with lovely old houses and not-so-lovely McMansions that might as well be made of dollar bills with diamonds sunk into the paths leading up to the circular driveways. And they might as well put a price tag on everything because that's the message these monstrosities broadcast. But it is fun to see. And finally, (laughs) we went up a smaller road where you turn into the receiving gate of Glenstone. After we parked the car, we walked along a paved path that takes us past the Jeff Koons huge, weird sculpture, Split Rockers, which Koons made after his divorce split, that's shorn bald of its flowers that cover the sculpture in spring, summer, and fall. And it's now bandaged in its green covering, leaving only trailing dried vines, the chin hairs of an old man. And all along the walk, it's winter beauty, soft colors, golden pink rows of dried bushes against the gray-blue sky with dark evergreens far away. The land shifts in subtle hills and valleys, and there are the most amazing, stark, and beautiful big trees which were moved there. They were moved from other parts of the property, and they're more wonderful than any sculpture. Everywhere you look, your eyes and your mind are being cleansed and past, you go past stands of trees with paper bark and then you arrive at the visitor center. This is by design, the quieting of your mind, the opening up of your senses. You're in a state of receptivity. I've talked about this before, especially when we went to MoMA in New York to see the Cezanne drawing show and how it takes a while to relax your body in order to look at those subtle, quiet drawings. But at Glenstone, you are deliberately transported to a place where you can experience art. Mitchell and Emily Rails are the brains, the inspiration, and the financial means behind this ever-growing and changing masterpiece. Mitchell Rails is a business person and an art lover and collector. He grew up here in Washington and went to Walt Whitman High School. In 1986, he brought land in Potomac and hired the architect, Charles Gwathme, to design his house. In 1998, he had a near brush with death as he was on a fishing trip in Russia, and a plane exploded 10 feet away from him, and Mitchell got serious. He realized that he didn't want to be the richest man in the cemetery. In 2008, he married Emily Wiley who graduated with a degree in art history and Chinese studies from Wellesley College. She had interned at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City and worked in New York art galleries and ran a small nonprofit, which produced small exhibitions. So now they live with their kids on the Glenstone campus. As you look over the hill, you see some low box-like gray structures, and those are the pavilions that comprise the indoor museum. It's a museum of indoor and outdoor man-made and natural wonders. It's the culmination of years of thoughtful collaboration, exploration, and unlimited expense to make this unique place. But most of all, it's a gift to all of us. Accept it. We are there to see the amazing work of Tacita Dean, but we are walking slowly, stopping to look at Charles Ray's self-portrait as a shiny aluminum cowboy sitting on his horse outside the first pavilion. At first, it's sort of stunning because somehow the force that is nature, the trees, the fields, the color, the light has convinced you that nature is the best landscape artist. And even though the landscape is also partially man-made, the hills, the trees, bought, moved, moved again. And now this aluminum horse and rider is sort of lighthearted. Don't be so reverent. Don't be so serious. (laughs) Yeah, right. The exhibitions that are in the galleries at Glenstone now give us visual variety. But today, Sheila and I want to concentrate on the drawings of Tacita Dean and the small paintings and prints by Via Salomons and come out of a a career-long efforts in drawing as well. Sheila and I have taught drawing for many years. Sheila and I uh, met teaching drawing and painting classes at the Corcoran School of Art and Design way back when. (laughs) These exhibitions that we are talking about take basic monochromatic drawing 
and painting, actually, and push these processes to a higher level. Monochromatic drawing is drawing with lights and darks from black to white or white to black with shades of gray to create value, also known as tone. Tonal drawing or value drawing can describe many things about our world. It can describe visually shapes, forms, even colors, space, textures, patterns, emotion and mood, visual emphasis, movement and energy, and other elements of art and compositional principles. Tacita Dean's three large-scale drawings of chalk on white with white compressed charcoal variety on blackboard or chalkboard surface explode with power and energy that are monumental in character. These three works are panoramic, and they are a tremendous lesson in an artist's expressive and excellent use of value to create visual effect. There are three works, Sunset from 2015, when, when first I raised The Tempest from 2016, and The Montafon Letter from 2017. Well, when you first see, and I mean not just see but apprehend Montafon Letter, you see this huge work. It's 12 by 24 feet. There are nine panels and at first, it looks somewhat photographic of mountains of snow and distinct features, trenches, snow slides, avalanches, very dimensional, with an amazing control of black to white, with the brightest white reserved for the snow peaks against the black night sky. The panels are painted with blackboard paint, very bright, brilliant white on blackest black. It's chalk on blackboard of a place of the Aust in the Austrian mountains, and no matter how large or technical a photograph could be made, it could never have the life and brilliance of this work. The black is the sky, and the whites, the snow, are completely subtle and controlled. Looking at a photograph of it, it reverts back to a photograph, but standing in front of it, you're enveloped in it. It must be seen for how it's made. And then you realize that it's chalk on a blackboard. And somehow that realization makes them twice as amazing. Maybe because blackboards are from our childhood, where we did our schoolwork and drew the turkey at Thanksgiving and the Christmas tree <laughs> and put assignments on the board, this task awarded by the teacher to a favored student. And every day, our board monitors had the distinction of cleaning the boards with felt erasers and pounding them together outside in a cloud of dust. And that's what these drawings are, clouds of dust. There's something so fragile about these monumental pictures and so human, like you have a feeling of what it took to make these and how easily they're erased away. And it's because people my age, maybe younger, drew on the blackboard. And I wonder now that they're replaced by whiteboards and markers, would someone now know how amazing this is? But the chalk, only Tacita Dean saw the potential for beauty. The title, Montafon Letter, is from notes of, the, of an avalanche in the 17th century. There were a sequence of avalanches. Some people were buried and a priest came to officiate at the site, and he too was buried, and then he was dug out alive. There are notes about the events that are incorporated into the drawing, which are mostly indecipherable, but leave a sense of documentation. Yes, absolutely, and yes, these memories of the blackboard in class. Thank you for bringing those up, Sheila. Well, before I talk about these magnificent chalkboard drawings, I'd like to talk a little about the life of Tacita Dean. Firstly, I was fascinated to find out about what her unusual first name, Tacita, actually meant. It comes from the Latin meaning silent. Being obsessed by language myself, I had to research that, and of course, the English word taciturn is derived from it, the word meaning reserved and uncommunicative through speech, or someone that might just talk a little. Tacita Dean was born in Canterbury, Kent, in England, in 1965. She studied at Kent University and went on to get her master's at the Slade School of Fine Art, England's most famous art school that we have talked a lot about on this program. 
Her career is filled with accolades, even as a young British artist. She has won many artists in residencies, awards, and scholarships. Interestingly enough, her work primarily comes in the genre of film. And her films kind of mix photography, drawing, sound, and, of course, film. Her career also includes commissions throughout the world with film projections. The three works of the Glenstone seem to be a wonderful creative departure for her for this extremely talented artist. When first I raised The Tempest from 2016 is a panoramic work of a stormy sky. This work is 32 feet wide by 8 feet tall in different panels of chalkboard that are secured together. The title is from the Shakespeare play The Tempest. There is a rich tradition in the visual arts in England to cite literary sources as inspiration for titles and works, and this chalkboard drawing is a modern, magnificent example of that. In these large works, uh, are very subtle, and they have almost illegible words written on the work. This gives this dark and mysterious landscape even more mystery. Strikes of lightning fill the sky, and the dark and there's a dark throughout the panoramic sky. Clouds are drawn beautifully throughout. Additionally, on studying this work, you can see a hue of blue in this monochromatic work. This was a reaction to the chalk from a, a spray can of chalk onto the surface that turned the blackboard with a mix of the chalk a very subtle blue. I like it, and it adds a bit of color drama to the work. Upon close inspection of a huge work like this, you can actually see the process. Yeah, and because when you add the faint blue to the mix of black and white, your eye generates brown on the black. So you can see a really complete color palette, black, white, gray, gray, blue, and then this orange-brown. Well, the immediate impact is huge. You turn the corner, coming down the stairs, which are kind of like a modernistic castle, and wham, the panels are huge, the black-white contrast is huge, the images, clouds, and mountains, very convincing. So the first taste is great. And then I wondered, can she keep it up? Is, was it, is it going to continue to be interesting? Well, yes, I became totally engaged. It's a snow-covered mountain, a summer afternoon cumulus, and storm clouds with lightning above and below. These are all created in your imagination. Well, first of all, there are beautiful, arresting images. They're bright and refined and photographically realistic. They're so large and detailed, you can't take it in at a glance. The images are alive. Then, then it alternates with contemplation of how it's done. It's just chalk. It's so fragile. Chalk was formed prehistorically, eons ago, from the skeletal remains of sea creatures. Now, calcium sulfate is substituted. It's similar and made into white or colored sticks, you know, chalk. But chalk is not as refined as our pastels, and the blackboards of our childhood are really never black because they're covered in layers of chalk dust. So these drawings are a rediscovery of an amazing potential for this ordinary material. There's the third piece uh, mentioned before, When I First Raised the Tempest. And as Tom said, that title is from a line in Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. So it's, it's a long view of a gigantic storm from below, giddily structured, parting in places like clouds in a Renaissance religious painting. You've seen all that, the, the layers and layers, revealing a celestial light shining through, full of promise, despite the danger. Oh, yeah, there's danger in that sky, all right. Well, Peter, especially somebody that's really, you know, totally, you know, a phobia for lightning like me. Uh, Peter, upon close observation of this massive work, you identified some words that are very important in understanding this work and its literary source. Can you explain this to our listeners? Right. I, you know, it's just um, a couple of words. Uh, in the upper left-hand corner, uh, you can read a phrase uh, that might begin a screenplay. Um, I forget. 
something. It's something about a frame, something about beginning. I forget. Uh, but then on the right side, I do remember, is the word exeunt, a Latin word, and that's the last word in Shakespeare's plays, a stage direction for everyone to exit, everyone exit the stage. Uh, so it seemed to me that perhaps this long drawing, how many feet was it? Uh, 32. 32 feet. Uh, it's, you could read it as a scroll, kind of. You could walk along it in a line, unrolling in time, um, like a Chinese scroll, except from left to right. The tempest stands, and I promise you, calm seas, auspicious gales. Three of her drawings here contain words and phrases which are semi-hidden in the clouds and uh, glimpsed through the snow. People do a lot of talking while viewing this work. And since we're seeing meaning in the drawing, I think the artist put words in there. We can't really read many of them, but it's as if meaning is struggling to get through. Well, directly facing the avalanche painting, you, know, you turn around, is sunset. It's 8 by 16 feet. The whole painting is of a cloud, and what a cloud. Ooh, lit at sunset with like a great formation illuminated from within. Tacita Dean blends the chalk with her hands and with a cotton cloth. She hasn't found a fixative that wouldn't change the substance. It would be too shiny or taking away some of the brightness or subtlety. So the chalk is very fragile. If it gets smudged, and it does, she will come to the site and fix it herself, or she can send an emissary who is trained to fix it. And to make matters even more precarious, there's only a stripe on the floor at Glenstone. I would guess about three feet out from the wall, but there's no barrier. And it's so natural to gesture to somebody that with your wit, that you're with so the guides constantly have to remind viewers to stand back. They have to remind me too. I have been reminded because, <laughs> because it, being this close to this enormous cloud, you can't help but want to be buried in it to reach out and embrace it. It's so solid and so ephemeral at the same time. It speaks to Dean as a creator, not God the creator, but herself having created this monumental experience. Isn't that what an artist is? Right. You know, it's, it's also a little freaky because it is tempting. You want to reach out and touch it just to, just to, just to convince yourself. And you have to hold yourself back. <laughs> right? Yeah, you do. Right? Yeah, you do. Yeah. So sunset is a, it's, it's an image of a cumulus cloud formation over Los Angeles at sunset. It's not impressionistic. It's very dramatic, very complex. And as you look into it, you see billows forming and developing at all scales of detail. As Walt Whitman said, urge and urge and urge, always the procreant urge of the world. It's just busting out. It, and an elaboration of structures at multiple scales and draws you in and you somehow you look further and then further sort of through the openings between the clouds. There's so much depth, so much detail, so much to look at. All the vastness our eyes can see. As you said, Sheila, the medium is it's, uh, not subordinate. It's out in front. Uh, we can enjoy, we cycle back and forth from looking at the medium to the image, from an imaginary reality in the clouds, then the reality evaporates into a dusty chalkboard. Well, uh, you know, as you guys are talking, I'm thinking about the, the movements in these, and the way they set it up at Glenstone, to me, was very, very interesting. You come down the steps, and you look straight at sunset, and it's the clouds are like pushing you up. Yeah, then yeah. you turn around, mm -hmm. and then you're looking at the Montafon letter, this huge 
mountain of the avalanches are coming down oh, at you. They're coming down. So yeah. now, so now you're twisted in another oh. way, and then you're running from the avalanche, <laughs> from the avalanche down the corridor. And then, as Peter wonderfully said, you're kind of in this panoramic sky, uh, and and you're just cruising from left to right as we read a drawing so you're you're moving in three different ways through these fantastic fantastic drawings with chalk on a blackboard well tacita dean's three works bring back you know essential books on drawing that i remember reading as as a, a young art student the classic British text, which I, I, I truly recommend it, is The Elements of Drawing by John Ruskin, the famous British artist, critic, and troublemaker. And uh, John Ruskin um, could really draw and paint, and he's the, one of the best in the best naturalist British traditions of artists. He was an inc incredible draftsperson. This book gives an art enthusiast a way of thinking on how to see and render in a process-oriented way. And that's the thing about these Tacita Dean drawings. They're so full of process. And the book is a great one. And you could still buy it. It's very small and inex inexpensive, The Elements of Drawing by John Ruskin. And the uh, edition that I suggest is edited by Lawrence Campbell. And Lawrence Campbell was an art professor of art history and drawing uh, and an art critic. And he was very involved with the art students link, but I remember him distinctly at Brooklyn College when I was a student, and he was a wonderful professor and a very gentle man. Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3. Today we're discussing the work Glenstone. I mean, that's a work in itself. Every time... I go to the to Glenstone. I spend quality time there, and every time I go to Glenstone, I feel an enthusiastic sense of personal wholeness, which is gifted to me by the nature and the art that's there. In addition to the artists we are concentrating on today, Tacita Dean and Via Selmans, there's a major monographic exhibition titled Jeff Wall by the artist of the same name. Although these look like large-scale digital prints, they are called uh, cinemographs, and it's in a cinemographic style the artist calls cinemography. It's a kind of a new word. It's hard to get out. These are large-scale digital cinemographs, uh, a.k.a. photographs for most of us. These are uh, thought-provoking works. They're worth a look, and uh, we'll talk about them a little later. Welcome back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with my co-host, Tom Sinakis, and also my husband, Peter Blake, if you hear a third voice. And if you just joined <laughs> us, you are listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today, we are discussing Glenstone the great museum in the D.C. metro area that gives one art and nature in a wonderful experience if you let it. In addition to the artists, we are concentrating today on Tacita Dean and Via Kalmans. This is a lovely exhibition entitled Third Installation by the artist Charles Ray. It's a beautiful room with four works. After many and never enough visits to Glenstone, I am just finding out who Charles Ray is. He is the the 
aluminum cowboy <laughs> outside of the first pavilion. And he is, was born in 1953 and is based in California. He's a, a renowned teacher there. The Charles Ray Room, there's a room for him. It changes. This is the third installation, and he selects and installs his work and it's up to the viewers to make the connections, which at first I wasn't able to make at all. His imagery is all over the place, in, in scale, in whether it's a naturalistic thing or a crushed aluminum tank or something. And Ray approaches his room as a laboratory of ideas, allowing each presentation to reveal connections between material and form. In other words, it's sculpture, but it's also about sculpture, trying out new vocabulary and new ideas based on, but breaking with tradition. This room, the third particular Charles Ray installation, explores the tension between balance and instability, self-portraiture, and visual deceptive works with obvious and illusory materials including concrete, steel, handmade paper, and aluminum. The works on view that are here now span the entirety of the artist's career to date. From an early sculpture conceived in the 1970s to a work completed last year, this connection of balance and instability are terrific because as you stick around and walk around them, your own body feels that kind of off-kilterness. So because we just be made our acquaintance with the aluminum self-portrait as the cowboy outside, I immediately was drawn to another of his self-portraits, but this time he is made of handmade paper, a life-size ghost of a small-boned man sitting on a rectangular block, bracing himself with his hands so he could get up any time. Somehow the paper has enough asymmetry and sense of bones that it has life in it. It has the impulse to move. And uh, there's also something else freaky. Actually, you have to be told that it's made out of paper. Uh, it doesn't look like it. It's, um, it's very white and very matte, but very bright. And so it's mysterious. Uh, what in the world could it be made of? Well, luckily the guides are there to tell us, but the paper itself, it's got that fragility to it, and it almost feels lit like just what I said, ghost-like. So if we take a path out of the main museum the pavilions, past the uh, mounted rider, cross, you cross a bridge and you come to a, a smaller gallery where you'll find a small exhibit of the artist Via Kelmans. The first work, the first work that you come upon when you enter is what I recognized immediately as a star field. That's what astronomers call their photographs of the starry sky taken through a telescope. So a telescope, because it gathers so much more light than a human eye pupil, and because you get to take long exposures, can reveal thousands of stars in every direction. The heavens are mapped and remapped continually by the astronomical community with ever greater precision, and uh, it allows the motions of moving bodies to be mapped against this constant field. Now, in art, the first requirement is to be fascinating. And we humans can be fascinated by many different things. We can be fascinated by stories, uh, by individual beings and actors. But here, let's pay attention to the allure of fields of information. So many of us are fascinated by maps. I can pour over a map of Wyoming for a long time. A lot of people can. And scientists enjoy hours of intense study of charts, which are a passage leading to an understanding of nature. So our minds look for patterns. Nature appears to us in a combination of order and randomness. So in a star field, the stars are random, 
in placement and in size, but we can look into that randomness and see randomness itself. We can tell the difference between a random array and one that had some order. improvisation or order. Uh, but within that, within that, there's order in the stars. The circles of light all have a profile of intensity that fades out towards the edges and increases symmetrically to the center. That's what a star looks like in a good telescope. And uh, Via actually captured some of that. I don't know how. Here and there, if you look closely, you'll see an object that doesn't have that same symmetry. A galaxy, maybe. A galaxy far away, beyond the stars in our galaxy. So in making, by hand, a copy of a star field, and, it, and she did copy it, a star field because I saw a picture of her with uh, a photograph taped to her easel. Uh, Via Kelmans directs our attention to our attention, to our own mind that sees meaning everywhere. Wow, I'm glad you can explain that, Peter. I wouldn't <laughs> well, know where to begin. Well, you know, you, you, you asked me to, and I thought it, it actually is... I mean, why would somebody make a copy of a, a photograph through a telescope? And the fact is that if you put an actual photograph of a star field on the wall, I mean, it wouldn't be art. No one would look at it. Right. But by making, but by doing such an incredibly difficult and time-consuming imitation or copy of it, you you look at it and can get lost in it. Yes, kudos for her. Well, <laughs> I was probably about 19 years old when I was first introduced to the work of Via Selmans. I saw her work at the Brooklyn Museum as an art student, and I was mesmerized by her photorealistic works of natural environments like the sea, the sky, and the universe. As a student of drawing and painting at the time, these works kind of sucked me into the picture plane of the paper or the canvas. And the attention to details and the technical applications of her media impressed me. I always remember that first impression. Almost 50 years later, these works continue to resonate with me. Glenstone has a wonderful group of works in two rooms on a uh, and the wall outside the entrance of the exhibition. Her life is an interesting one as well. She was born in 1938 in Latvia, one of the countries on the Baltic Sea, which historically has had spheres of influence from the Soviet Union and Germany. Her parents fled the Soviet occupation of Latvia to the Nazi, re to the Nazi regime in Germany. So she went from the Soviet Union to Nazi Germany in 1940, and she came to the USA in 1948 by the World Church Service, which relocated her family to Indianapolis, Indiana. She did not speak English until the age of 10, but she did feel at home in the art school in Indianapolis, and she won a fellowship to Yale, and she met Chuck Close and Bryce Marden, who were classmates then at Yale. She became... She, uh, she began with these monotone works, and she was very, very influenced by the great Italian painter Giorgio Morandi. Uh, she received an MFA from the University of California at Los Angeles, and she taught at various uh, universities in California before she settled in New York City in 1981. She really is an outstanding painter and a draftsperson. She says she was most influenced by Chuck Close and Gerhard Richter, and uh, the Gerhard Richter was particularly, I think, um, obvious in some of those, in that painting especially. Her work in monochromatic media is a sea of gray tones, and which, which is, you know, she leaves a lot of marks on this artwork, and they're abstract yet photorealist of the seas, the spiderweb, skies, constellations. They're all beautiful, te uh, textual, and meticulously done. Glenstone provides a small yet powerful selection of paintings and mezzotints, a printmaking technique, and two sculptural works. These works are extremely meditative to me. With little points of reference uh, you're given when you look at these works, the viewer is forced to move through them up and down and back and forth. And it's an exciting journey. Well, 
There's a series of paintings of the jumbled pattern of waves on an open body of water, and each painting has its own light. So, Tom, you had to point out to me that they were the same drawing. Yeah, I, yeah, it's yeah. tough to see that. Yeah, I didn't know that. So, But I'm not going to talk about her work because when I look at it, I get this feeling that her obsessiveness and her ability to concentrate without deviation, it kind of makes me sleepy. Really? <laughs> it does. I think of her as just, you know, just like this intensity of basically copying that just, it, it really does make me, I don't want to say bored, but it makes me sleepy. So sorry. You talk oh, okay, about Okay, here we go. <laughs> Thanks for that, Sheila. Always throwing a, a late last minute <laughs> frisbee at me. Okay, something which is very subtle about these paintings is that Sheila has just said they're the same exact image of the sea. Well, but the way she manipulates the different tones to create these compositions makes you look like it makes it look like they're actually totally different paintings because they're not the same tonal quality if you will it's very subtle and you need to look extremely slowly and carefully since these are depictions of waves in an endless sea and again there are no points of reference you don't see a boat you don't see anything in that sea the perspective of the makes them abstract and this is kind of intriguing in the work. And as Sheila kind of mentioned with the obsessiveness of, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, agree with that, and I was going to use a different term, but I won't on the radio, <laughs> the, the meticulous nature of the brushworks, which are really not visible, lure the viewer up and down these shallow waves in a his, his hypnotic and rhythmic way. But there's really no need for Dramamine here. I mean, you're not going to get seasick. But in fact, it's kind of a calming effect, which I think Sheila kind of alluded to in a way, in a boring way, <laughs> but which I, I think the, it's because of the values are low contrast. And I think that's why yes. the calming effect. That's there's right. no bright whites. No. There's no dark darks. So there's no extreme value shifts. And, and that's what gives it the calming effect. Mm -hmm. Well, this is totally different and an extreme contrast to the monochromatic Tacita Dean works we've been we talked about at the beginning of the show, which are very dark, almost black at times, and they're contrasted with these white edges, like in Sunset from 2015. Selzman's is not about extreme contrast in all these sea paint you know, works. She does address strong contracts, though, in the space and the universe star prints uh, in that gallery. And, and, and again, I want Peter to chime in here because he's the star guy in this group. And uh, these visual impressions, and there's one painting of the stars and the rest are mesotints. Uh, Peter, can you explain again, like especially with the dot paintings in this landscape, I mean, is is that what a NASA person sees through a telescope? These little, slightly colored dots on a canvas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's these paintings are not just for NASA people, um, <laughs> <laughs> but we do have some insight into them. Um, they they are copies of real telescope images. Some are stars in our galaxy. Uh, one of them is looking through empty space uh, in our in, to a deep field of many other galaxies, millions of light years distant. And one of them is a negative. Uh, astronomers often prefer to look at the negative image, which is, after all, the, the original image uh, in a camera. Uh, but they prefer it because it emphasizes the space between the star images. It's clearer. The spatial relationships are, are clearer and emphasized. Uh, thank you for that uh, explanation. Because, um, again, it's totally out of my realm of comprehension. Uh, well, the stars in the universe 
works are prints, and they are a series of mezzotints. A mezzotint is a print made from an engraved copper or steel plate on which the surface has been partially roughened up for shading and partially scraped smooth in other areas, giving light areas. And I think Selzman's use a cop uses a copper plate. And the technique was used in the 17th and 18th century and early 19th century for reproduction of paintings. Mezzotin is a monochromatic printmaking process from the Italio family of printmaking. It was the first printmaking process that yielded halftones without using light or dot-based techniques like hatching or cross-hatching or stippling. So... Um, I learned something about that because I'm not a printmaker. Well, good drawing skills, though, are essential to do a mezzotint. With the subjects via Salzman's is, is depicting, there seems to be great challenges in doing these. These mezzotints are details of stars in the universe, and again, they look like photographs. But uh, I don't. I'm not a printmaker, but it, it has to have... You have to have great resolve to do these on a copper print. Uh, I don't. I don't know how. It's it's amazing, uh, and it's phenomenal how she does these so precisely. Well, if there's a continuing theme in our choices of what we are talking about today, it's fragility. So there's a globe that Via Kelman stayed, and it's made out of translucent paper. And it's small, and it hangs on a thread and rotates very slowly in the gallery breezes, and it's at eye level. It's a copy of an old globe, a very beautiful-looking globe with soft, beautiful colors. The lettering is perfect, and so much is labeled. There are so many islands, rivers, and seas. They're all identified. The copy is meticulous, and so obviously labor-intensive that you're stunned that someone could have hand-painted it, and yet it's hanging right in front of you. You can touch it. You're tempted to touch it. You know, of course, <laughs> that you, you can't really, really touch it. It's so valuable, so fragile, so blue, just floating there like our planet. Yeah, that's why children aren't allowed in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, it looks like we have a little more time. Uh, we could discuss another exhibit, uh, the one that I liked and maybe you didn't so much, uh, Jeff Wall. Um, you gave a brief description about the, the, the huge photographs. Uh, they're very bright. Uh, ma many of them are large transparencies over a light box. It's a large exhibit, uh, which I enjoyed a lot uh, for most of it, until I got tired. I did get tired, you know, at the end. And, um, and you, I think you got tired of it long before I did. Some of them are ambiguous, but most are dramatic tableaus um, posed with actors that are sometimes convincing, sometimes artificial. Uh, I wonder if our listeners are familiar with the short stories of Raymond Carver or Tobias Wolf, Dennis Johnson. Um, these stories give a glimpse into a life that these writers have seen close up, uh, people living on the edge, the edge of town, the edge of poverty, life and liquor, disappointment, contempt, hope, anger, tattoos, <laughs> schemes. The first piece by Jeff Wall is a photo it's a photograph of a dilapidated small farm with a falling-in porch and a, a horse on a ridiculously small plot. Uh, there's trash in the yard. But clearly, the surrounding land of this, of this subsistence farm has been sold and condominiums constructed all around it. A stream flows by it and an elevated gravel road. I stared at this almost with rapture. It was so exquisite. A little later, there was a large photograph of men waiting near the value village to get day labor. I've gone myself to these spots to hire workers for some home project, and it's disturbing and wonderful to, do, to go there. Um, this is not a candid photograph like Cartier-Bresson. It's um, staged, 
so the men are acting. But you feel still like a voyeur staring at people who would not want you to stare at them. But there's a lot of variety. Uh, you can't express it. Um, just an example. There's one large tableau of ambushed and dead Soviet soldiers in Afghanistan who are talking with each other as if they're in the bardo. Uh, and there's a knife-throwing contest, another photograph with a shirtless, tattooed young man being watched by a couple lying on the floor of some really trashy clubhouse. His torso and tattoos are really interesting, and so are his pants and his shoes, the floor, the girl on the floor. I don't know. How could you not like this? Well, what I was very confused by is that all of these uh, tableaus are set up, and there's often, as you say, a, a scene of drama, and that could be somewhere like not in the, not in the, part of the photograph that you're initially seeing, but then you see like three people fighting on a lawn or some somehow there's some drama going on that looks to me incredibly set up like acted. And I can't tell if that's meant to be acted, if if somehow Jeff Walsh wants you to see it as as a sort of setup or if he wants you to believe that it's real. I can't tell, because in the stories that you're talking about, Raymond Carver or Richard Ford, they are real. You never think of them as a story. Yeah, yeah. So that's partly why I was disturbed by them. I don't know how to look at them. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was disturbed as well, uh, probably more than you, Sheila, <laughs> because there's something about the... The whole setup is a is a falsity in some ways. It's a fake. Okay, and then the subjects and how they're portrayed are done. I I think in a very cynical vein. So you have cynicism and falseness uh, mixed, and that's a dangerous combination because it, it leaves you uneasy. Like, what is he trying to say? Is he like he's setting up like? The, the painting with inviting the vampires to a party and, you know, they're all, like, sucking each other's blood. I mean, you know, it, it's kooky, but it, it's also staged. He got these people to come, and, I mean, it was, like, an exciting that actually people showed up to this vampire party. So <laughs> there's, you know, different strokes for different folks. But the point is that I don't appreciate cynicism at this level because there's a grandeurness with the technology. Mm-hmm. He's he's using technology in, in a very astute way, and yet the the message is is, is very base yes. to me. So you see the, the gamut of, of, of um, in sense in some sense these works are filled with hypocrisy to me and, and I, I, I have to say that turns me off after a while. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Because I kept thinking that he paid these actors to come or he paid friends to come and take these parts in his little dramas. So not little, big dramas. Yeah, they're very large scale. Yeah. Well, well, it was an exciting day at, the, uh, at Glenstone for sure. And seeing the works of particularly these contemporary female artists, Tacita Dean and Via Salmons, uh, it wanted me to go back into my studio and start a new series of works. I mean, I had like 70 unfinished paintings in these boxes, and I grabbed one start. So it really inspired me, and, and I think that's what, the Glen, that's what Glenstone does. And it moved me in such a way about process towards product with these artists we talked about today. And the, uh, this visit to Glenstone makes the experience exponentially more valuable. Well, when we left Glenstone, we were quiet. We were walking back to our car, and suddenly we're aware of regular life, that we will continue (laughs) after this, at least uh, as regular as life can be with COVID, and we're hungry. And the sun is setting, but everything is still. And then looking up at the sky, the clouds, remembering the stars and the globe of the earth, the hopefulness of the artists to cause us to reflect on the delicate balance 
and the vastness and the laws of physics and the rails to make this place for us to contemplate. And the successful launch of the James Webb Telescope, it made me think about the extraordinary beauty, the achievements of people, the achievements of the rails to create this wonderful place for us and the artists and the scientists and the engineers and the possibility that we may be able to affect change. And that's what I hope for. Oh, thank you for that uh, closing comment there, Sheila. Uh, Essential Glenstone, the title we have given this program, provides an environment and setting for viewing outstanding contemporary art. Sheila, Peter, and I concentrated on the monochromatic works in the drawings of Tacita Dean and Via Salmons. These wonderful artists engage the viewer in two diverse ways by pushing the boundaries of drawing, painting, printmaking, and sculpture. The scale of the works are quite different, as is their processes and sensibilities, but both their works take uh, their meter and push them exceedingly uh, in important, to important levels uh, towards the infinite heavens and the universe. We talked about the additional uh, great exhibitions right now at Glenstone, uh, the Jeff Wall uh, Cinemagraphs, uh, the uh, Contemporary Sculpture by Rachel Harrison, um, Charles Ray and his wonderful sculpture room, uh, Glenn Ligon's uh, graphic light topography work, and, of course, their works on, on the beautiful grounds of Glenstone as well. Even on a cold, blustery day, you can see these outdoor sculptures, and they are beautiful. Just bundle up and enjoy the essence of Glenstone. Glenstone Museum is in Potomac, and you can immerse yourself in the website at glenstone.org. And... Uh, it's just an amazing uh, place, and you just need to make reservations, and please do that in advance. Any ideas, Sheila, on the next show? Well, we're coming into February, which is Black History Month. So we will be doing some thinking. There's a, a like a, almost a renaissance of black artists who are being, I would say, unearthed. Some of them we don't know about. Some of them we do, and we will do a show. Oh, that's exciting. Thank you for that. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.